What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is James McMurtry, who has a fantastic new album, the horses in the house. James, good to have you on the podcast. Welcome, good to be here, Bob. Okay, you're on the road touring now, right? I am. Yes, I'm currently in Albuquerque. So, what's it like being on the road during this Delta era? Well, it's a little different. I mean, this is a solo acoustic tour, but uh, rather than staying in hotels like we used to, we're staying in Airbnbs, so we don't have to be in elevators and hotel lobbies and. Basically, you know, we, we find a central location and just base out of there for a few days. So, you know, right now we played Albuquerque last night, uh, be going up to Santa Fe today and coming back uh, after show. And then tomorrow I'll go up to Taos and play a show up there. And what kind of venues? Uh, the Taos show is the big barn dance in the Kit Carson Park. Uh, all, all of these shows on this run have been uh, outdoors except for Phoenix and Phoenix was was a little strange to start because I, I had, I thought I had required uh, mask and vax only. And they were checking vax cards, but you know, we looked out there right before the show and nobody's got a mask on. So I talked to the management and they said, well, we can hand out masks. And I said, well, please. And so they did and all but two people masked up. And how do you know the two people weren't you just saw them in the audience? They, uh, the, the management told me about them. There wasn't anything they could do at that point. It's Arizona. Um, I, I don't really understand. I mean, also, yeah, they, they weren't told when they got there that they had to have masks on. So I can kind of see, but it's, it's very strange that, you know, that artists can't require safety protocols. I mean, we, we used to be able to require non-smoking shows back before smoking bans went into effect. And uh, a lot of promoters didn't like that because they wouldn't draw as well. But eventually that became the norm. You know, it, you don't see smoking shows much anymore except in tobacco growing states. So how hesitant, if at all, were you to go on the road? 
Well, quite hesitant. Uh, I mean, I canceled everything beyond Taos. I was supposed to fly from Albuquerque to Atlanta in a couple of days and get in a rent car and go driving around the southeast and up as far as, actually up as far as Detroit and back around. But uh, I couldn't get any of the venues to honor my safety protocol, so we just dropped it. And your safety protocol was vaccination and mask? Yes. For indoor shows, I, I want to see, I want, I want vaccinate, vax cards and, and masks, you know, as much as you can. I mean, obviously you got to take them off to drink, but, you know, I, I want everybody working against the virus. I don't want to feel like I'm out there working for the virus, drawing people together where they're going to get infected. And, you know, it, it, Austin opened back up a few months ago and immediately we started getting breakthrough cases among musicians mostly. Because they'd be inside in these little clubs and, you know, a crowd of people, some of them vaccinated, some of them not. And if you're a singer or a drummer or in some bands, anybody, any musician, you're breathing down to your toes. If there's any, you know, a viral load out there, you're going to catch quite a bit of it. And, you know, the vaccines don't, you know, they're, they're not 100% protection against contracting the virus. They, they tend to keep you out of the hospital. You know, all the, most of the musicians I know that, that contracted COVID, you know, they, they had mild cases, uh, meaning they weren't hospitalized. But the problem is, you know, the crowd spreads it amongst themselves and maybe they're vaccinated and they, they get mild cases, but they take it home to their kids who can't get vaccinated. And now, you know, we're seeing kids in ICU, especially in Texas, where they don't allow mask mandates. You know, Houston has something like 50 kids in ICU, and the whole state's running out of ICU beds. Now, you live in the Austin area, right? I live in Lockhart, yeah, 30 miles due south of the Austin airport. I haven't been there. What's Lockhart like? Well, it's a pretty cool little town. I mean, uh, 10 years ago, it was a kind of a dried-up farming town, you know, boarded-up storefronts on the square, and, uh, you know, mostly agricultural base, and... But uh, they got a new guy on the Chamber of Commerce, and they wanted to revitalize the town. And he told them, well, first thing you need to do is start issuing liquor licenses. You can't be a dry county anymore and expect to thrive. And so they did. So they, you know, a lot of young people started moving down from Austin because they couldn't afford it anymore. And they're starting businesses. There's you know cafes and bars with sidewalk service, that sort of thing. And it's kind of it's starting to thrive. It's, it's And it's interesting how... You know, the locals that have been there a long time, they they kind of accepted us because, you know, they, they have an economy now. And how long have you lived there? I, I moved there in 2019, um, February of 2019. So you moved as part of this arts exodus, shall we say? Well, yeah, my, my landlords uh, passed away a while back and it. Their heirs finally got the place out of probate, and they offered it to me. I, I was rent, I was actually renting both sides of a duplex because I figured out I could write off one side for rehearsal and storage, and, and uh, it worked pretty well. But you know, there was no way I could buy it. The you know, the ground under it was worth three hundred and fifty grand, and the building itself was a teardown. So how am I going to get financing for that? You you need a developer with a pile of cash if you're going to sell something like that but they were nice they didn't they didn't run me out they gave me time to get my act together and find a place i could buy so you own in lockhart i own in lockhart yeah what kind of place you own 
That's just a little house in a little subdivision that sticks down between a grain field or a maize field, rather, and a couple of pastures. And uh, it's actually across the pasture from the Lockhart Airport where they do flight training. And there's a Cessna plane that circles around all day. We call it the incessant Cessna. It took a little while to get used to, but it's just part of life now. So how big a house, how much property? Oh, Virtually no property. I think, you know, quarter acre lot, uh, 1,300 square feet, something like that. Well, you know, I always wonder, I'm a late night person, and wherever, whenever I live close to people, I always upset them. I'm up too late. The music's too loud. Have you encountered any of those issues? No. Um, we're pretty quiet. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't crank up an amp at home very much. I do that in rehearsal spaces. So, so far I haven't, they only, I did annoy my neighbors because when I first moved down there, I had five cats and uh, they're all outdoor cats. We had to cage them up for a, a while and they had been feral cats, but they sort of moved in and we got them fixed and all. But we're down to three. I'm not sure what predators, I think an owl got the last one because I found owl feathers across the street and I don't know what got that other one. The coyotes don't come into, into the neighborhood like they will in an urban area because, you know, Rural coyotes get shot at. They they like to stay away from dogs and people. When you say we, who's living in the house with you? Uh, my girlfriend, uh, Kelly. I've been and with her. I know you've been married once. This yeah. lady, how long have you been involved with her? Uh, 21 years. Uh, 20 years, yeah. 20 years July. Yeah. Now, I've been involved with my girlfriend for 16 years, and I'm not married. Why are you not married? Uh, it didn't. We just... Uh, I don't know that's that important to us, and it would mess with her Obamacare. Okay. You talked about living in Lockhart. You say you don't rehearse there. Where do you rehearse? San Marcos. As I say, I'm Texas ignorant. Where's San Marcos? Uh, well, San Marcos is about 18 miles east of Lockhart, and there's a good rehearsal facility for a good rate. And my band is scattered around in several different directions, and San Marcos is fairly central to all of us, so that's where we go. And just plotting in my mind where San Marcos relative to Austin? Due south. Well, a little bit yeah, south and a little bit west. I keep forgetting I thirty five kind of runs at an angle through there, but Okay. But yeah. now, now you say you're doing this acoustic tour. You talk about your band. How many of you are on the road right now? That's just me and a tour manager right now. Right. So when you're on the road alone, your band members they're only getting paid when they're on the road with you? Well, yeah, they all, they're all they pretty good carpenters. <laughs> okay. Have you ever had to have a second gig since you've had your first record deal? No. So it has worked out for you. So, you know, Texas is in the news like crazy, and I realize Austin is like the hippest part of Texas. What's it like living in Texas now? Uh, Texas is pretty crazy. You see a lot of Trump signs, a lot of don't tread on me signs, and they're always on the, the, the richest looking ranches I ever see. They've got these big ornate, you know, sheet iron gates with, uh, with uh, always have the word ranch in them. They usually have figurines of, of cowboys roping something. And, and the cattle look like 4-H calves, you know, they look like they've been manicured. And then you'll have this don't tread on me sign and you want to go, you know, that yellow flag with the, with the rattlesnake on it. And you just, you want to go knock on the door and say, who's treading on you? You look <laughs> like you're doing just fine. And those are all over the countryside out there. And, you know, we keep hearing that 
Texas could go blue. I have a friend who lives in Fort Worth who says that's never going to happen from your viewpoint. Well, What's going on? It should uh, numerically, but the thing is, Republicans have gerrymandered those districts for so long. And I, when I lived, when I last lived in Austin, I lived in what was called the uh, the Fajita District because it snaked its way from South Austin down through Beeville and Kennedy, all the way to the Rio Grande Valley, snaking its way through Republican strongholds. And Austin was cut up into a kaleidoscope like that just to keep us old hippies from having any clout electorally so you know we read about abbott we read about the abortion law we read about the voting laws is it just going to continue to go in that direction or is something going to change well i can't predict the future um they're going to try to keep it going in that direction they're trying to turn the clock back to their version of the 50s which which means uh segregation and women have no rights the part of the 50s that they don't want is the 70 percent tax bracket <laughs> so if you're in austin is it like a bubble even though the state government is there or does this affect all walks of life and everybody's life in uh, texas it's kind of a bubble but i don't really i don't go into austin much anymore because austin it's turned into some version of california i mean we got all this high-rise multi-use structures going in and and valet parking everywhere (laughs) and I don't recognize it, even from two years ago. But Austin is known as a legendary nightlife music town. Is that an accurate description? It was accurate up until about maybe five years ago. Now it's Disneyland, basically. Can you amplify that a little bit? Well, I mean, it used to be you play in clubs and and you get music aficionados coming in to see you. Now you get tourists coming in, sometimes on buses. They'll get off the bus and have a bunch of drinks and stand in front of the stage taking selfies and then get back on the bus. And it's not about being there and experiencing anything. It's about saying you've been there. So if you're a starting out musician, is Austin a good place to be? It's a little expensive for a starting out musician now. I think the the way the reason it became a, a kind of a music mecca is because the cost of living was so low for so long that it's not that way anymore. One might ask the question, why live in Texas? What's the appeal? Well, I still live there because my band lives there and, and my girlfriend works there. And that's just, that's just where I live. Um, I don't know that I would move here now. I moved to Texas right now. And what does your girlfriend do for a living? She tends bar. And you have a son. Mm-hmm. Where is your son presently living? He lives in uh, Oak Hill over on the west side of Austin. Okay. So you have a new album. You're not on a rigid schedule. Why a new album now? Well, it's just when it happened to finally come out. Uh, We made this record, and we tracked it in uh, June of 2019 with Ross Hogarth producing, and and he's pretty busy, and I was pretty busy touring then. And so after the tracking, we had to juggle our schedules to try to get the overdubs done. That took about the rest of the year. We were just about to finish up keyboards when uh, California shut down and then the rest of the country shut down. And so we had to do keyboard overdubs kind of piecemeal with various different musicians in different locations. I I did a couple of sessions with Buck Allen in Texas and Ross had some guys that were emailing tracks in. And so we we finally got it all assembled and mixed this past year. Um, And, um, I don't remember when 
the August release date came about, but that's just that's what the label decided on, and and now it's out. Okay, did you make the album already have a having a record deal in place, or did you cut first and then shop for a deal? Oh uh, no, I had a deal with New West Records. Um, Logan Rogers, uh, he he owns a label called uh, Lightning Rod. He did a couple of my records. And before that, he was with uh, Compadre Records, and they, they did a couple of records. So I, I knew Logan. Uh, he's now VP at, at New West. So he was kind of the key man on the contract. So you have a deal with them. They pay for the record. In today's marketplace, which is so different from when you started out, what is your label doing to get the word out? Well, I, I assume they're doing plenty of ads, and they got Al Moss working it to radio, so... They seem to be doing a good job. We're, I think we're number three Americana this week. So, you know, you started out on a major label. As I say, the landscape changed irrelevant of your career. You put out a record today, an album today. What are your personal expectations? What do you want? Well, what I want is to to get people in the clubs. I mean, when, we, when I started out making records, on a major label, the business model was, you know, you put the record out and you toured to support record sales in the hopes that you would sell enough records to recoup your cost and earn enough royalties that you could make a living off the record. Well, you know, didn't, that didn't work for me. I didn't sell near enough records, but I did get a foothold in the touring business and learned how to tour pretty cheap so I can actually profit on the road. Well, as the business evolved or devolved, however you want to look at it, you know, Napster and Spotify came along. Suddenly, nobody's making any artist royalties off records. Everybody's having to scramble down the road. So at that point, everybody else was doing what we'd already been doing. Um, so we look at, you know, at, at a record. A record is, is a piece of art, but it's also a piece of advertising. We put a record out. I get to talk to you. I get to talk to you know, all kinds of journalists. I get local press when I'm going to a town to play a gig, and people will know I'm coming, and they might buy a ticket. That's what I'm looking for in a record. Okay. Pre before COVID and its insanity, how many dates a year were you doing? I was out about half the year, and when we were home, we had weekend gigs and regular gig at the Continental Club on Wednesdays. I also had a regular solo thing so uh, we we're pretty busy well anyway, since then i had to learn to stream so now i do a couple of live streams a week and and uh, it was it was pretty good money at first and then everybody's unemployment ran out and they don't tip quite so high but but they're still pretty generous and uh, loyal so I've, I've been very lucky with the people out there so how frequently were you doing the live streams twice a week once on wednesdays and once on sundays and what platform were you using? I use uh, Facebook and YouTube and Twitch. For a while, I was just using Facebook. I usually have like two fifty a week, or two fifty per show. Uh, at first, it was somewhat more than that, and then I guess everybody got bored with McMurtry. I don't know, but uh, it's boiled down to you know two hundred, two fifty loyal fans, and uh, from different places. You know, Wednesday night I do it at, at eight p.m. Central. And then Sundays I do at 1 p.m. Central because that way I still get I get the Europeans that are still awake and I get the Californians that are just getting up. So you have to think globally on the net. And do you think it's the same 250 people every gig? 
where there's a certain number of diehards? A bunch of them because, uh, well, yeah, because you see their handles on Facebook scroll. I use uh, I use Restream, which goes uh, multi-format. So it goes out to uh, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Twitch has the best technical aspects, best audio, best video, and about two listeners. Uh, we're getting another, we're getting more unstable internet. Um, YouTube has pretty good video, pretty good audio, but Facebook remains the most popular. I think it's because of the interactive nature of it. People like to get together and chat amongst themselves. So if you're doing two shows a week, uh, on a presentation level, how do you decide what material to play? I try not to repeat uh, songs more than, you know, every third or fourth show. So I just, I just kind of rotate through my material and I generally do one cover song per show. Usually one that I've never played before. I just start surfing the internet and trying to jog my memory. So what are some of the cover songs you played? I did Garden Party one time. <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting. And I was, you know, I was like, that. sometimes I'll pull up hits that I remember when I was, you know, 14 or 15. Um, yeah, Please Come to Boston. I really like doing that one. You've done so many of these, you've learned what works most when you play the well-known songs or when you tell stories. Yeah, how, what works for your audience? Well, depending on a live show, I don't talk so much, but on the internet, you have to, you have to sort of be a, a kind of a twisted Mister Rogers, because you got to tune these guitars, and everybody's right up in your face. They can, they can see you, they can see your thoughts. So you got to keep something going, some kind of pattern. But uh, there's some of the old songs that they really like. They always like Choctaw Bingo, Level Land, Painting by Numbers, that kind of thing. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. So, do you personally know a lot of these hardcore fans, or do you keep them at arm's length? Uh, no, I don't know very many fans in general. Uh, and I don't do, like, I don't interact on Facebook. I don't do Facebook unless I'm streaming. Um, there was a little while where I kind of got drawn into the culture, and I, I just don't like that. I don't like to worry about it. Uh, I put my show out there, and Every now and then I'll, I'll post something just to see if I can get a feeding frenzy going. Because uh, for a while there, you you know, you get all kinds of trolls. That uh, was fun to watch. But yeah, if I'm mad enough, I'll, I'll I'll post something. But I don't ever look at the comments anymore. I just you know, I don't worry about what they think that much. Well, you're a guy who is not speaking in bland statements, and there's a lot of personal stuff. And therefore, it bonds fans to you. And I'm wondering if one of the reasons you might keep fans at arm's length is you might have had some bad experiences. By the flip side, there's a lot of acts that depend on their fans to get the word out. They literally stay at their houses. Where are you in that game? Well, I don't, I don't stay at private residences on the road. And I'm just a little too old to be that accessible because, you know, when I was starting out making records, we were still in the business of selling exclusivity and myth. And it's more fun to sell that than 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 accessibility. I don't you know, I've I've gotten I got where I didn't want to go to the merch table anymore for for a while there. I had to because we had to make a little extra money and. And the, my drummer's in the t-shirt business. I wanted him to make a little extra money. So I'd go out there and sign stuff. I found that, you know, after you drive all day and then you check in a hotel, you take an hour off, you go load in, then you sound check, then you do a show. Then you go out and try to talk to people and you just don't have anything left but meanness. So quite often I'd get in a fracas with a fan, you know, or... <laughs> You know, or I just let them know what an asshole I was. You, know, you don't want to let them know that. You want to keep them in the dark on that. And so it's, it was better if I don't go near the merch table and sign stuff. Because one thing, it just takes so much energy. And you need that energy for the next day's show. And, you know, there, there are artists like Joe Ely who could talk to people all night long and get up and play a great show the next night. But me, it would wear me down after a while. And besides that, you know, everybody's got a camera now. They all got a cell phone, so they're going to get a picture with you. And it just it takes a lot of energy to stand there and do that and just to be nice. 
for that long when you're already that tired, you know. The freeway can make you grumpy. <laughs> How big of your business is your merch? Um, you'd have to ask my manager or a merch person. I, I don't really keep tabs on that. Um, I don't like merch personally, <laughs> but it's just necessary. Okay, and you don't like merch because? Because you got to carry it around, and then somebody's got to account for it. And it doesn't, it's not my craft, really. Well, I guess the question I'm asking is, if you don't sign and you don't sit there and talk to fans, does that drive the numbers down? Definitely. But it's worth it to me to have more energy the next night to do a better show. The show is the product I'm trying to sell. And I feel better if I do a better job, and I do a better job if I don't bother with the merch table. Okay, you know, your agent is Frank Riley at High Road Touring, good friend of mine, great guy, really dedicated. So how do you plan out your tours and going on the road? You call him and say, this is how much I want to work, and how much is involved in terms of the conversation? Well, um, actually, as Dave Rowan does most of the hands-on work, with my tours, Frank does some, you know, he, he gets some good stuff coming through him, but basically you arrange a tour, you get some good offers, you get some good money offers. And the trick at that point is to get to that money and get home with most of it. So you'll have your anchor dates that are high dollar. And then you just take regular club dates for whatever the market will bear to get you there. So you can put gas in your van, you know, pay for the lodging, pay for the payroll, um, per diems, food, that kind of stuff. You're out now with just a tour manager. How do you decide when you go acoustic and when you go with a band? It depends on the offer. Some, some clubs would prefer acoustic, so they'll offer an acoustic show. And, you know, so we'll do an acoustic run, which is more lucrative. They, they, you're getting the same money up front, but the overhead's a lot lower. Um, but I wouldn't want to do nothing but acoustic because it wears you out. You don't get as much back from an audience and you don't have the band energy. It's like a band show that the energy is sort of circular. You're passing it between you and the band and the audience and it comes back around. Whereas you know, with a solo show, it's just you and the audience. It's linear. It's like a tennis game, straight back and forth. Um, it's great in some ways. You can, you can really get your songs across. Uh, but... You know, you, you do a month of those days to just wear you flat out. So when you do go on the road, how many dates a week do you tend to work? Well, we try to work six days a week. We take Monday off for a travel day because um, um, nobody goes out on Monday nights anyway. And you always travel in a van? With a band, yeah. If it's just a solo thing, then it's just a... Well, right now we're in my dad's old Hyundai because uh, it's the best running car we got. And you, you go out solo. How much equipment do you take? I take just two. I take a 12-string guitar, a six-string guitar, uh, a couple of tuners, a couple of pedals. That's about it. Are you an equipment geek? Or, you know, you said there are people who have 100 guitars or other people who really only have one. Where are you in that landscape? I have quite a quite a few guitars. I couldn't count them, I don't think. Um, and when I tour with a band, I usually have five guitars on stage. Uh, 
I thought about bringing a third guitar on this solo thing because I got a I got an eight string baritone I've been messing with, but I didn't have a hard shell case for it, and I didn't want to bring it out because you know stuff happens. And when you bring the five guitars for a band gig, what are those guitars? Well, the main main guitar is a Paul Reed Smith Swamp Ash Special. As I bolt, you know, it's got a bolt on neck, and and uh, then I've got a Jerry Jones baritone. Uh, I've got a National Res Electric, and uh, sometimes I bring a Strat for a spare guitar. Sometimes I've got an old Guild S60, you know, real weird looking thing, single pickup, but sounds pretty good. I'll bring that sometimes, um, and I've got a Guild Acoustic with a Sunrise in the hole. You go on the road, and you know you say it's kind of overbearing. Ever been in a car accident as a result of all this traveling? No, the only uh, only real automotive mishap I remember was on my first tour, or I guess maybe technically second. We and we'd put Wasteland out, and we'd gone out and you know toured as a band, opening up for the Bodines, and then Nancy Griffith, and then the Del Fuegos, and we're out for about three months, and then. It's about to go home, and suddenly the Indigo Girls wanted an opener. So I took my, my bass player at the time, Randy Garvey, and he also played guitar. So the two of us went out as a duo and opened up for the Indigo Girls. And again, we, we jokingly termed ourselves the Out You Go Guys. But um, we got down to San Francisco, and the original road manager on that managed to get deported. Actually, I, I had a hand in that. I was rather stupid and tipped off the border patrol by going back looking for my road manager who had crossed in a separate car. And they wound up sending him back to Canada. He's from New Zealand originally, but but he had rented a, a, a Ford Taurus station wagon. And so we we, we picked up another tour manager in, in Portland because I didn't know how to settle a show or anything. And he rode with us all the way down down the coast. And we got to Eugene. And I was supposed to fly ahead. I was supposed to fly down to San Francisco and sit in a hotel all day talking to press while the tour manager and the bass player drove that Taurus down past Mount Shasta in that way. And, and they got there and the phone rang and and it was Dana, the, the tour manager, he said, we got a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, the streetcar just ripped the driver's door half off the rent car. I said, well, are you hurt? He says, no. I said, you're not bleeding or anything? He said, no. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, well, you're in San Francisco. So what you do is you empty everything out of that car and you take it over to North Beach and leave it on a street that's going to get swept in the morning. Car will disappear. Which it did, and then somebody got a hold of Max, the original tour manager, who was back in New Zealand at the time, and and he had been planning to ditch the car anyway. He wasn't going to pay a you know budget a drop fee on a car that he picked up in Seattle to drop in San Diego. So he just called in it, you know to the rent car company and said, "Yeah, I told you, it's in space sixteen in front of the Edgewater Hotel in Seattle. What do you mean it's not there?" You know. So he called it in stolen, basically, and they charged him $70 on his visa card. But uh, nobody got hurt physically. 
And when you're on the road, do you ever drive? Oh, I do most of the driving. Bass player, you know, when I, when I wear out, the bass player drives. And then if we have a night drive, the drummer drives. And how do you decide that? How do you decide who drives? Well, if it's, if it's after a show, the drummer drives. Uh, I usually, I do the morning shift because that's when I'm best. And then bass player wakes up, uh, you know, somewhere between one and three in the afternoon. And I stop for gas and he takes the wheel. And how many of these are long drives? Well, we try not to drive too long. Um, I mean, uh, eight hours in a show is, is max for us. And it's usually between four and six in the West. In the East, it'll be shorter. It'll be you know, two to five hours because the distances are, are shorter back there. So, you know, it sounds like a grind. And I realize this is what you do and you have to earn a living. Do you dig it? Do you like going on the road and going through this? I do once I'm out. I don't like leaving that much. It's, it always I have to work up to loading that van and getting out the front door. You know, the dogs look at you funny, kind of cock their heads. They get all sulky. And, you know, if you get used to staying at home, it's harder to go back out. And it has been, you know, since the lockdown, I have a different view of it all. Um, and it didn't take long. You know, after I canceled that first tour, I was home for a couple of weeks, and I, I realized my joints and my bones didn't hurt. I wasn't rattling down the road in that band, you know. It's just something about you, you hunch over that wheel, and it's that last 20 miles into town, and you're trying to get in before rush hour locks the whole thing down, and it just gets really frantic. And that, you know, that torques me out pretty good. I don't miss that about the road. Now, the road is rife with people's stories of abusing drugs and alcohol just to cope. I mean, you come off stage, you're all fired up, takes you a long time to come down, maybe you're traveling. How do you cope with that? Uh, well, I've done my share of the alcohol, and uh, and there's places I can't go back to because of that. Uh, there's a lot of things I'm not proud of. And at this point in time, the band members, how long have these particular members been playing with you? Uh, Darren and Tim have been with me 24 years. And Cornbread, the bass player, he's been in about uh, 12 years, I think. Wow. Okay, let's talk about the new album. So how did the songs come together? Was it like, oh, I have an album, I got to write material, or is the collection what you've done for the previous five years? Well, I work from a scrap pile, a scrap pile that I've worked on for the previous, you know, thirty years, and uh, basically what happened this time is Ross Hogarth called up after having waited a few months while I was messing around trying to finish these songs, and he says, "Look, we can get into Groove Masters in June, so I'm going to book the time, and you're going to finish the songs." So I said, "Okay." Did that work for you? Yeah, I got the songs done. <laughs> okay, so it's been, you know, a number of years since your last album where you're writing songs. Some people are woodshedding all the time. They have extra stuff. They have throwaways. Other people, they only have what they come into the studio with. What's your situation? 
I had less than what I came in the studio with. Actually, I finished a couple of those songs uh, in the Roadway Inn in Culver City. Um, just because, uh, actually, yeah, it was uh, Darren, the drummer, he told me, he said, yeah, I want that song about glasses. You know, yeah, we did that once at, you know, at uh, Soundcheck and it wasn't finished, but I just pulled it out and tried it. And he remembered that. So get that song back out and finish it. Let's cut that. So, so I sat down and finished it. Okay. Do you, some people, you know, they work out word by word. Other people wait for inspiration. How do you do it? I get a couple of lines and a melody. And I just keep picking at it, and over time, it, you know, if, if I think about the the lines, I think, okay, who said that? Uh, so I can envision a character, and uh, and if I if I can get the character, I might get a story, and I can put it into a verse-chorus structure, and uh, that's how I get a song. I have to be careful. Sometimes those characters don't agree with me. And the, the the trick there is to stay in character. Uh, if you st- you start a song in character and then you start pushing your own opinion, you're going to break character and you'll have a sermon instead of a song. Okay, the opening track talks about a 30-year crush. Where did that come from? Uh, I just heard it in my head. You weren't thinking about somebody you knew 30 years ago? No, I'm a fiction writer. Okay. But in a world music where it's mostly autobiographical, do people still think that this is your story? Of course. Uh, You know, people think that Rachel's song is my story. You know, it's Rachel's song. It's not song for Rachel. (laughs) Rachel is the narrator, but it's sung in my voice. That's the thing about being a singer-songwriter. You know, Tom T. Hall wrote Harper Valley PTA, but I don't think he sang it, so he didn't have that problem. He pitched it to a female artist. Okay, another song is Operation Nevermind, which I'll just say is a political song. What's the backstory there? Uh, There is a little backstory there. I did have a a friend of mine was in the Army for a long time. He really liked it until the... Until he got to Baghdad and got crosswise with some contractors and the, the army brass backed the contractors over him, basically. And that's where I got, I got some of that story out of that. But my, you know, my problem with a lot of our military operations since Vietnam is that, that we don't know what's going on because we don't allow actual coverage. We don't allow journalists. I mean, the last time I saw real freelance, you know, television journalism at a military operation was was when uh, Reagan sent the Marines into Beirut to guard the airfield as a symbolic presence. He thought he didn't think anybody would shoot at a Marine, I guess. And these guys were, you know, they'd suffered some casualties early on from snipers and. At that time, you know, cameramen and, and reporters were just walking up to random Marines and asking them questions, and the Marines were allowed to answer. And they looked right in the camera, and they said, why'd you send us? 
this isn't our mission. We're an offensively trained unit. You know, you're having us guard something on low ground, surrounded by hostiles on high ground, and we don't get to go out and take the high ground. Why us? Then, you know, the uh, barracks blew up. Somebody drove a truck bomb into a barracks and, and killed a whole bunch of guys. And, um, you know, I'm sure Weinberger and Reagan didn't look good. And pretty soon, suddenly we're in Grenada. And nobody can really figure out why we're in Grenada. And the, the journalists that came ashore with U.S. forces were detained aboard a U.S. aircraft carrier for the duration of the action. Uh, I wasn't. I was talking, telling that story to uh, Scott Simon from NPR the other day, and he said, "Well, you know, I covered that war." <laughs> he says, "But he didn't go in with U.S. forces. He went in through Barbados with Grenadian citizens and just kind of snuck onto the island." So he knows a lot more about that action, but. You know, but ever since then, you know, we, we haven't had just, you know, freelance journalism going on. I guess the next major action, you know, in Desert Storm, we had Schwarzkopf spoon feeding us the war to a press pool in a tent, watching the video clips that he wanted them to see. And then now we do have embeds, I hear, that are, you know, out there with the troops and doing good journalism. But it's hard to get to. There's so many sources now. You know, during Vietnam, we had Walter Cronkite and some other guys, and everybody listened to them. We had a center because we only had a few channels to listen to, and everybody listened to Walter Cronkite, and that war ended when Cronkite got enough of it. But, um, you know, now we, we don't have, we, we don't know what's going on, and so we can't make decisions as citizens. You know, Tennyson said from the, you know, in the, in the Light Brigade, from the point of view of a soldier, he said, ours is not to question why, ours is but to do or die. But as a allegedly free citizen in a free society, ours is to question why. And we're not doing that actively. We've kind of trained ourselves not to. But the flip side is we we don't know what to question because we don't have information. So that's that's part of what that song is about. This is it your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. 
Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Okay, so now it's certainly a different era from the three network era. And just to flip the script, one might say that the right wing and the Republicans, they are saying they are personally analyzing the information. Therefore, they're not getting vaccines. Therefore, they have their take on all these things. So, you know, we have the informed citizen looking for information. We have another segment believing they found the information. Where does this leave us? Um, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're in a mess because everybody has their own reality now. And, you know, we got so many sources that, you know, you can, you can find the channel that's going to give you your own opinion back and reinforce your opinion. And I guess maybe that, that sells more products than actual information. And if you could snap your fingers and change America, how would you change it? Um, I would educate people. I would fund the public school system as much as possible. I would try to teach um, critical thinking yeah, still got an unstable internet. No, I mean, I remember being very frustrated as a, as a college student, which I was not a very good student, but uh, I took a philosophy class, and I would go in to these discussions, and all anybody wanted to know was what was going to be on the quiz and the answers to it. Nobody was discussing philosophy you know, it's about ideas, but we're not discussing ideas. We're not, we weren't trying to learn concepts. Well, I realize now that all that was an elective that fulfilled something and all these kids needed it to get to something so they could be engineers or whatever they were trying to be. You know, they saw it as a process towards uh, you know, economic security, uh, financial security. I, you know, I looked at it as school and I'm trying to learn something here. Um, Silly me. Did you finish college? No, I think I became a sophomore. But you know, we just we, we don't we don't want people to think. It's much easier to govern people that don't think. So, where did you get the, all this insight and all this knowledge? Was it from your parents, your mother, your father? 
Well, my parents were both academics when I was young. Um, you know, Larry made his living teaching creative writing uh, up until the last picture show. You know, he had some books out, but in those days, you could keep putting out books whether they sold or not. That The publishers would let you run five or six books at least. Um, but he wasn't selling enough books to make a living, so he, he taught. And then finally he co-scripted picture show and and got a foothold in the screenwriting business and that's mostly how he made his living after that um but you know, he was an academic my mother was an academic most of the people we knew were academics and they got around and they discussed books and they discussed ideas and i guess some of it bled off on me because i don't i didn't like to read i still don't i'm not a well-read individual and did you grow up, your parents, how old were you when your parents split up? Uh, less than a year, I think. I don't, rem I don't remember them being together. Excuse me, were you raised by both or primarily your mother or your father? Uh, my father. Your father. So you grew up with your father? Yes. And was he the type of person giving you lessons or he was more hands-off? No, he didn't give me lessons, as I recall. Uh, he was just there all the time. So he wasn't giving you a fatherly philosophy? Um, no, but he taught by example in a lot of ways. I mean, it's very strange, you know, to see these politicians now just fighting so hard for white power. I would have thought that would have gone away. Um I remember, I think it was about 1968 in Houston. It's before we left, before we moved to Virginia. Um, and my dad was driving, we were on Sunset in Houston. He was driving along, he was looking at this house across the street, because I guess he, he thought maybe he could buy a house at that point. And he was looking at this house for sale. And he rolled into the back of a delivery truck at five miles an hour. And, and I flew off the back seat and hit the back of the front seat because, you know, we didn't have seat belts on in those days. Well, he didn't damage the truck in front of him, damaged the car a little bit. And we all got out and, and the driver was black. And that's the first time I really ever saw fear on the face of a grown man. And the first policeman that came up, I'm pretty sure, was a walking cop. They had those in those days, and big fat dude. And Larry spent 20 minutes trying to keep the cop from giving the driver a ticket. Repeating over and over, no, sir, it was my fault. He was just stopped at the stoplight, you know. That cop got so mad, his face disappeared. He could not believe that the, the white guy wouldn't let him pin the ticket on the black guy. And, you know, a couple of young cops showed up in a cruiser and they kind of looked around and shrugged and got back in. But that big walking cop just kept at it relentless for a long time. And I didn't really take all that in at the time. It, it, it took a lot of years. But to realize that, that that was a brave act on Larry's part at that time and place. You know, I recently watched the film Magic Trip. And although you're very young, two years old, Ken Kesey and his bus and Merry Pranksters come and stop at your father's house. 
I wouldn't expect you to remember that scene. But while you were growing up, did your father interact with all those people that he knew from uh, Stanford, et cetera? Well, he certainly interacted with Ken. I don't know if he interacted with Peter Beagle or any of the other people in that Stegner class. Uh, but I, I do remember the second time the bus came to that house. I was a little bit older. I was like six or seven then. And uh, and I took a liking to There was a prankster by the name of Hermit that I, I idolized Hermit because he wore a big knife on his belt. And... Uh, one time we, we rode the bus over to the Astrodome and back and and the cops took Hermit's knife away and I thought that was some kind of a tragedy but it didn't shake him up real bad and of course Hermit turned out to be an FBI informant who eventually got a lot of them thrown in jail so be careful how you pick your heroes you know. wow and since your father interacted with Kesey, he's a fascinating character, comes out of the shoot with a lot of success, and then he will literally say, well, you can judge whether he fried his brains with drug. what was your drugs? What was your perception of Ken? Um, I was about half scared of him. He had uh, very charismatic and liked to hold court and you know, kind of control the conversation. And I, just, I wasn't used to that kind of manic energy. Yeah, you know, our, our house was pretty calm for the most part. Okay, you wrote, certainly in my eyes, Song of the Decade, We Can't Make It Here. Is there any power in political songs anymore? Certainly in the 60s, they were woven into the culture, anti-Vietnam culture. What do you think now? I don't really know. Um, I, mean, I, just, I wrote that song... I started it during the Clinton administration, and I finished it during the Bush administration, and I, I kept singing it on into Obama's years a little bit, but uh, I don't—I didn't expect it to have any kind of power. I don't know that it did either, um, but um, it was fun for a while. Well, we we work in a business. We have success doing anything, especially in today's world where it's hard to get noticed. Most people try to replicate it. After you had that success with that song, did you consciously not want to repeat it? Did people ask you to do something similar? No. Uh, the, I didn't set out to write a political song. I just I followed the, the words where they led. Um, and then the next time, the, the, the problem was I, I got pegged as a political songwriter at that point. And so on the next record, I had Cheney's Toy, which was political for sure but it was more McMurtry ranting it wasn't written from a character that everybody could identify with so it was fun but it was largely misinterpreted people thought I was saying that the soldier was Cheney's toy which I was really saying Bush was Cheney's toy I was I was referred to that era as the Cheney administration I felt like Cheney was the puppeteer and Bush was the puppet and you know I read in the New York Times that Cheney would tell Bush you're the man every you know, a day to get him to pump his ego up so he'd go out and sell his policies. And so I thought for some reason people might recognize that. Well, it turns out a lot of the country doesn't read the New York Times. <laughs> so so I got a little bit of a bad rap for that. But, you know, I should have been more careful. You talk, Do you read the New York Times? Do you keep up on the news every day? I did for a while. Um, I tend to read the Post now, Washington Post. Um the Times got a little wimpy, in my opinion. The Post is 
rebuilt itself into a good paper once again. Can you go a little deeper in the difference of the two? Well, the Times seems to always have to, you know, hedge its bets and and try to look like they're being objective by giving the right wing a little bit of play, which uh, Post doesn't bother with that so much. You know, they own their liberalism a little more fiercely. So, since you really do, even though you claim not to, you really follow this closely and have a lot of insight, where's it going in America? Like I say, I can't can't judge the future, but um, it doesn't surprise me so much. What surprises me is that, you know, people, after Tim McVeigh blew the sight off that building, we didn't do some kind of national psychological triage. Because anybody that's just driven around in the middle of the country knows that that was not an anomaly. You know, people out here have been trained to distrust the government and distrust elites, whatever they call them. You know, they'll say they hate elites, but then they'll vote for a Bush, you know, that sort of thing. But this distrust of of liberalism and and government, it's deep-seated and long-seated. And it's it's bundled with the racism that's every bit as deep-seated out here. So, you know, right now, Although there's a Democratic administration, the Democrats control three main, well, the, they control the Congress and they control presidency. They certainly do not control the courts. It seems like the Republicans are gain the right wing, even though smaller in numbers, are gaining ever more power. They have the state governments, and that's a big deal. And because they, they can, you know, they can gerrymander these districts where they can stay in power, uh, but. It's really strange. I mean, like, they're supposed to be pro-business, right? Well, Governor Abbott back in Texas, he, you know, if he doesn't like your policies, he'll come after you. And um, any club there that tries to do a mask mandate or a vax mandate is immediately threatened with the loss of their liquor license. Now, for some reason, the, the way he's preaching it, you know, it's it's government oversight if the feds tell Texas what to do. But if the state of Texas tells a private business it can't have a mask mandate, then there's, that's patriotism. They're fighting for your individual freedoms. And um, I don't understand how he can spin that to his advantage. But but his followers, well, they'll, they'll just do anything to keep from doing what the liberals do. They'll take calf medicine. I have relatives who take calf medicine bovine and equine dewormer and you bother to get into it with them no so once again you know there's a long there's a big stand right now amongst the right wing and the white nationalists etc even though the country is going more multicolored shall i say and the whites are decreasing in percentage of population but certainly in Florida, there are a lot of people, Latinos, who voted Republican. And you're living in Texas. I mean, is it just going to go on this way or is there going to be an inflection point? It'll, it'll go on this way as long as they can keep it going on. I mean, they've always preached that, that the white man is outnumbered. Well, maybe now he actually is. So they're freaking out, you know. 
They're losing their minds. We we had a black president. That freaked them out. I remember seeing a sign in in Utah, or no, it was in in Idaho. It's just on the south side of Lolo Pass. A big sign by this cabin in the middle of the woods. Congratulations, Jimmy Carter. You are now the second worst president in U.S. history. There's another line in your new album talking about, you know, they're going to need the Mexicans to actually build the wall. Yeah, that's well, that's an idea that's been batted around. Uh, Tom Russell wrote a song, "Who's Going to Build Your Wall?" I just I just made a different spin on it. So, what is the backstory of the Glasses song? Uh, we uh, there's a festival in in the Florida Panhandle called the 30A Festival, and it takes place in January and multi-stage, multi-venue, a lot of bands coming in and out, and it, it all takes place along Florida Highway 30 alternate which runs from runs Pensacola out through Destin, Fort Walton Beach, goes all the way over Mexico Beach, Panama City. Um, but I've played it a number of times. I've yet to get in and out of that festival without freezing to the bone at some point. Because when the wind blows out of the north in, in North Florida, it's the same north wind that goes through Texas. <laughs> it gets cold, especially you know, right there by the Gulf. You got that damp cold that just goes right through you, and uh, it can be miserable. So I, I don't know why. I just started messing with words about, you know, she woke up mad trying to pick a fight. I got the thing going. Um, I'd written most of the song for it. I, the glasses was just supposed to be a placeholder. You know, I heard it in my head. And I, well, I'll put that in there until I get to where I can write a real chorus. But then I hadn't finished the song when I sang it at Soundcheck just for a lark. And and it stuck. Uh, it just, you know, it seemed to sing okay. and It wasn't hurting the song. And, you know, everybody that heard it said, oh, just leave that in there. It's fine. Now, there's a line there where you talk about the woman being in the shower and she's a loon. You know, we live in the Me Too era. Needless to say, you've established that this is fiction. You're writing in characters. But do you ever internally blink saying, oh, I'm going to write this and I'm going to get blowback. Maybe I should. Maybe I shouldn't. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I get a, some, there's some places I get a little twingy singing Choctaw Bingo. And I wrote that a while back before the Me Too era. Um, there may come a day I don't get to sing that anymore. Things mean different things in different eras. So I don't know. Right now, I'm still taking my chances. And about What's the Matter, which I find the catchiest song and a great song on the album, even though it's close to the end. How'd you come up with that? Uh, decades of riding along, listening to people talking on cell phones in a van. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been listening to that since the cell phone came about, pretty much. And uh, how did you decide on the order of the record, the track listing? That is always, always tricky. Um, yeah, you find one to start and you follow it. You, you don't want to be have too many songs in the same key or the same groove. So you have to separate everything out that's going to cancel itself. You know, and This record was really tricky because I had three songs in six. Don't ever put three songs in six on the same record. You know, If I had it to do again, I'd have written one more song and bumped one of those sixes. But... <laughs> But we got it done. 
And how much of the record was written in the studio? How much of the songs were pretty much finished? How do you do it? I probably had six really complete songs. And I finished Decent Man at, at that uh, that uh, Roadway Inn in Culver City. Um, I'd come rattling. I'd, I'd driven out there without the band. I was just driving a van full of gear. And... Um, I came in. I got I got in just before rush hour, so I was just kind of tense. And I got in. I got off the freeway, and first thing I did was fill up my tank, because being from Texas, I assume when I go to California, there's going to be an earthquake. I'm going to be <laughs> sitting on a freeway for four hours trying to get out of there after the ground stops shaking. So I better have a full tank. I filled up. Uh, I remember it was uh, four dollars and nine cents for a gallon of regular. Um, went down the street, checked into the motel, went next door. There's a pizza place that had a decent glass of Malbec. And so I'm just kind of recovering from that freeway. And I'm, but except that they're playing on the sound system, they're playing all the most obnoxious hits from the seventies and eighties and I can't enjoy it. And I'm just about to leave and just leave the wine on the counter and leave and I hear Freddie Mercury saying, Mama, I just killed a man. And like, then I remembered that Decent Man song that I started 10 years ago. And thought, okay, now I got to go back and finish that thing. So I did. That's, that's how it wound up on the record. Because the, the story, that song story, it came from a short story by Wendell Berry called uh, Pray Without Ceasing. And I'd read that, and, and for some reason I started putting it to song from a different point of view i put it from the murderer's point of view and but basically just changed the season of the year and the chambering of the pistol otherwise you know, it's wendell's story and i actually i sent him a letter later saying hey you want song credit on this you want writer credit because it's your story and he said no it's a different medium he left me he left me a real nice uh, voicemail about it cool now anybody who's seen you live with the band knows you're quite a lead guitar player uh, ultimately, David Grissom is brought in by Ross on this record. What was the backstory there, and how much of the playing was you, and how much was playing with somebody else? Very little of the playing was me. Um, I, was, I was not. I'm not used to trying to track as a four piece, and the songs are so fresh that you know I was just getting in the way. So I just put the guitar down and just sang to lead the session, and. You know, and, I, and I'm not not that great in the studio. Uh, so, you know, if you're slowing the session down, you got to cut out whatever's slowing. You, you got to keep the session moving is the, the main rule. And Grissom's a studio guy. So, you know, he played most of the guitar. I played that, that little hook on uh, glass on uh, Fort Walton, that thing on the right, and a little bit of acoustic guitar on canola fields. And I did the solo on... Uh, on Vaquero. But um, now it's a studio record, you know. So when you're at home, when you're not on the road, do you pick up the guitar or you're checked out when you're home? I do now. It's weird. For a long time, I didn't touch a guitar if I wasn't getting paid to. It was like at some point the guitar became work. Uh, I'm starting to come out of that mentality now where I'll pick up a guitar and just, you know, play for 20 minutes half hour and i always feel better after i do it but for a while there i'd have to force myself to start 
And if you had to do it all over again, would you choose this career path? Yeah, I believe I would. And how do you feel about your body of work? I don't think about it much. It's the work in, in front of me that matters, really. It's maintaining the ability to, to keep creating. Well, do you have a peak that you can mentally conjure? You say, I want to I wanna push the envelope a little bit more here, reach a certain height. I just want to continue, and that usually means improving at least slightly as you go. And what have you improved at as you've gone on for 30 years? Uh, I've improved at singing a good bit, and, and that in turn has improved my writing. Uh, there was a point in the 90s when I would I'd go, I'd start out on the road, and we do a couple of dates, and usually the, the third gig. I would lose my voice entirely, and I have to just kind of croak through the set, somehow make it through, and then somehow it would come back, fourth or fifth gig. Well, my, my bass player at the time, Ronnie Johnson, said, James, you know, I, I know a good vocal coach. Just, just go get some vocal training so you get some, some exercises so you don't lose your voice anymore. And, yeah, you don't have to struggle like that. So I did, and uh, I, went, I went to Mady Kay. She's actually credited on this record because I went back for a tune-up so I could hit some of those high notes that I was clamming. And, um, but one of the things I learned from Mady is, is looking for vowels and consonants that sing well. If you know what sings easy, you'll write better because you will write for a singer. You know, it doesn't matter so much in poetry or anything spoken word, but if, if you're writing for, for the vocal instrument, then you want to pick your words. You want you want to pick words that roll off the tongue, that don't tongue tie you or hang you up or choke your voice off in any way. So yeah, I would say vocal training has, has really improved my songwriting more than anything else. So you stated earlier you're not much of a reader, but then you quote Tennyson, you quote the other person you based the song on. You talk about reading the Wapo. How do you spend your time when you're not working? Oh, I do a lot of staring into space, but um, I used to hunt and fish a lot. I'm trying to get back into that. Um, lately, I've been spending a lot of time cooking for appraisers. I'm sort of the wagon boss, no, wagon cook on the appraisal crew. And then uh, how much TV do you watch? I don't watch any TV. Um, TV frustrates me in the cable era and um, the satellite era. There's just too much. I, I was an avid uh, watcher of Johnny Carson. And when Carson went off the air, I just kind of never reconnected with the TV set. And how about all these streaming TV shows, the new era of television, starting with The Sopranos? Some of that, I did catch some of the Sopranos in various hotel rooms. I never, I don't think I ever watched a whole episode all the way through because it would always be, you know, I'd, I'd flip it on and we got a half hour before we got to go to sound check, that sort of thing. Um, but it's, that was good TV. And then some of the, uh, my, my son will, will sit me down and make me watch stuff every now and then. And uh, I thought Justified was amazing, some of those episodes. So you'll check into a hotel 
and you'll stare into the distance and let your mind come up with stuff? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Or I'll catch up on emails, that sort of thing. Um, and then spending a life in hotel rooms, you know, the roadway in is not the four seasons. As long as there's a bed or do you have a certain level you don't like to go below or you just see it as pain of being on the road? Um, well, there are certain regions where the roadway ends about what we can afford. Yeah, L.A. is a roadway in town for us now. Didn't used to be. We used to stay at the farmer's daughter. Farmer's daughter's, what, $400 a night now. <laughs> you know, We're not going to do that. Um, there, there was a, a great period where, where I could do, I got real good at Priceline. But then Priceline took away the name your own price function that put them on the map initially. So I don't really bother with that anymore. But Priceline was great for a while. But the main thing for me is proximity to the gig. If a nice hotel is going to add a half hour in a van back and forth, maybe a full hour after you've already driven a while, I don't want that. I want to limit the van time. Uh, of course, like this tour here, this is a COVID tour. We're not doing hotels. We're basing out of Airbnbs. So do you view yourself as sui generis, just off on the landscape, or part of the Americana scene, or part of a continuum? Where do you see in terms of context? Uh, I don't think about it. I mean, it's nice if there is a category somebody can put me in, because that usually sells more records, gets you a little more exposure. Uh, it would probably be nicer if I were, if I could make my own category like Willie Nelson, you know, somebody like that. But, um, I'm kind of ambivalent about the whole thing right now because, you know, one of the problems with, with, with any kind of artistic field is you got to get famous and, uh, the, the meager level of fame that I have attained up to this point can be as enough of a pain in the ass. If I if I got bigger, <laughs> it might be a problem for me. One thing about today, it's very hard to make new fans. Are you conscious of trying to make new fans? Do you think you're making them? How do you get them? What's your viewpoint on that? I'm not consciously trying to get them because I, I, I wouldn't know how. But I have been lucky that my crowd is multi-generational. I'm playing to the grandchildren of people that were in my crowd 30 years ago. Some of them. Um, and I've seen that. I've had people tell me that. Oh, yeah, my parents turned me on to your stuff. So, um, you know, we need that. We, that. That's probably why we're still going down the road. And as you still go down the road, I'm going to let you go here, James. Thanks so much for giving us the backstory and the insight and taking the time. Well, thank you, Bob. So thanks for your help over the years, too. I'm a big fan. I mean, you know, you're... I did. We met back in the... At the was it the Complex? We met at the Complex, and we also met at McCabe's, one of your acoustic gigs. Okay. Yeah, I remember you were doing Candyland at the Complex. I was definitely there yeah. with Mike. Yeah, Mike and Ross. Right. But then, you know, you stuck with those guys. 
you know, you're a loyal dude, but you know, I'm a big fan. I'm always interested in what you have to do and it's hard to listen to new music. Not so much because I'm baked into the old, but people tend to either be repeating themselves or resting on their laurels. And what I found amazing about your new album is you're speaking from an adult perspective, whereas so many people from your generation and older refuse to do that. They want to say, well, if I don't get old, you know, I can fool people and you can't relate to them. Yeah, I, I couldn't fool the kids. No way. <laughs> They're too sharp. Okay, thanks again. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.